Okay, thank you. Um, So, let me introduce myself first of all. Um, I'm Mary Evans, and I work in the Gender Institute here at the LSE. And I want to welcome you all very much to this event, which is in large part to celebrate the final um, collecting, the final work that um, has been done on on some papers in the Women's Library, the papers which are about the the movement in the Anglican Church for the ordination of women. You're going to be hearing a bit more about that in a moment um, from the person who has been doing this particular work. But first of all, I want to introduce to you the four speakers who are here this evening to discuss aspects of this work and the questions that it has um, led us to in the context of thinking about women and religion. So first of all, um, the person who is going to talk about the work that she's been doing on these papers, I want to introduce to you Fabiana Bartigiotti, who is sitting right uh, closest to me um, at the desk. Next to her is Professor Grace Davey from the University of Exeter, um, who is the author of a book on religion in Britain, A Persistent Paradox. Sitting next to her is the Reverend Sally Hitchener, who is the coordinating chaplain and faith advisor at Brunel University and founder and national director of Diverse Church, a series of communities which supports LGBT Christians and their families. And at the far end of the table is, is Mandy, um, Canon Mandy Ford, who is Director of Discipleship and Ministry in the Diocese of Southwark. Mandy began her ordained ministry in a very, ordained, in a very deprived area of inner-city Leicester, and she has a long-standing theological interest in urban ministry and, indeed, in helping the Church of England to resolve some of its difficult conversations about human sexuality. So can I ask you, first of all, to welcome all our speakers here, and then Fabiana will say more about the papers on which she's been working. So thank you. Oh, it's very modern. <laughs> um, so I have just finished cataloging the papers for the movement of ordination of women, um, which came to us, to LSC Library, uh, via the Women's Library. Uh, you probably remember that the, uh, the LSC acquired the Women's Library a few years ago. Uh, so that's why uh, we have the papers, the archives of the Movement for Ordination of Women at LSC Library. Uh, this project was, I have, I have to mention this, but it was um, uh, supported by Hefke uh, and supported by the Friends of the Women's Library as well. <clears throat> so the first ordinations um, that had women ordained Uh, in the Church of England was on 12th March 1994. It's a bit over than 20 years uh, at Bristol Cathedral. Cathedral. The movement for the ordination of women, and I'm going to carry on Como, uh, was a key campaigning organization uh, that fought for women to become priests. 
It was also a pre-formation of what we know today for watch, women and the church. So just for you to have an idea, um, the first women priest in the Anglican Communion was ordained in 1944 in Hong Kong. By 1989, many women were ordained in many other provinces, but not in England. Mo was founded in 1979 as a response to the negative vote in the General Synod to the introduction of a legislation which allowed women to become priests. The General Synod first voted to draft the, legis the legislation in 1985 and approve it by my majority in November 1991. So the movement for the nation of women uh, lasted a bit more than 15 years. And they, they fought for the women to become priests, but they were not, the, the discussion on women become priests didn't start in 1979 and didn't finish in 1991. Um, so the campaigning organization uh, was formed in a, con in a context where brought together a lot of groups that were discussing and wanted women to become priests. So what was their aim and who were their supporters? So they operated between 1979 and 1994. They brought together uh, isolated groups, as I said before. They campaigned to have women allowed uh, to priesthood in the Church of England. That was the main aim. But they also wanted, they had this belief that women and men should share ministry um, and have an inclusive liturgy. They started with 100 members, paid members. And at that time, actually, the organizers had to ask people to, uh, was mainly key people in the church, bishops, uh, they were asked to pay an amount of money towards the fund. So that was the first members. And then the membership grew uh, very quickly to, to the point that it was 10,000 in 1994. Um, included, the members included men and women, a lot of men, by the way. Uh, I, I won't have the, the right figures, but when you look at the, the membership um, uh, papers, you can see that a lot of men supported um, the, uh, the campaign. Uh, and we have people from the Anglican Church, but also other de denominations from the UK and also abroad. Um, <coughs> So their target audience, I mean, as a campaign organization, they had to target an audience, and they were the members of Synod, because they would be the ones to vote in favor of a legislation to go through. But they also talked to, to the more wide uh, churchgoers, where the support, the grassroots support to come from, and the wider audience. I mean, there's lots of uh, material in the Guardian at the time, or in, in on telly, for instance. Uh, I wasn't in this country at the time, but some of you might remember uh, the discussion gets through the 
you know, out there, and a lot of people got into the discussion. Um, some of the arguments for the ordination of women was theological, equalitarian society, benefits for the church, and sex discrimination act, which obviously you may know, but it excluded the church. So, you know, there was this big piece on the on the papers at the time saying the the church is actually uh, not, you know, the act allows the church to be discriminative. And the arguments, um, oh, sorry, that is a cartoon that I really like showing because it does show how women felt at the time in terms of employment in the church. Um, as you can see, there's lots of opportunities for women. Um, the arguments against um, the split in the church, liberalism agenda, male image of God, and traditionalism in the link and the link with Catholics. Now the archives. Um, I'm not. I'm not in any way any specialist in the subject women in and the church. Uh, but I spent one year and a half looking at these materials, and you kind of you you get a sense of what's going on, and what was behind the main discussions, the main facts and figures, and that's what archives offer. They offer beyond what you already know. Um, I'm an archivist, so I love archives. But I think these papers they they give us um, the the you know the sense of what was going on at the time, and perhaps when you look at the material, you can see lots of issues around women and the church and um, uh, it was discussed very much at the time, and I wonder if you know it's still very very fresh for today. But the archive has uh, a cover material from nine, from the seventies to ninety four. Um, it was donated to the uh, women's library when the mall was uh, closed in 1994, so that's why it stopped there. It contained documentary materials, correspondence, photographs, publicity material, and some objects. And some of the themes that touch uh, include gender inequality, leadership in, the, leadership in the church, campaigning strategies, and lobbying, lots of on the lobbying aspect of things. In detail, the papers contain um, a lot of things to do with the formation of Mo, you know, the first correspondence between the people who for formed it. We have a comprehensive, comprehensive set of papers of AGM, Central Council, and the subgroups that uh, formed more uh, in a way and I think these papers they they make they make their they are the um, skeleton of the archive um, and they are very good in its sense because it, it shows how the campaign how the organization run but also what what uh, discussions was going on at the time 
we have finances and membership, papers of campaigns, so a lot of campaigning material, how they created, and a lot of discussions about image, text. Um, so sometimes you, you look at things like, oh, how they, you know, how they created this uh, sort of material or cartoon or uh, any other publicity material, but there was a lot of discussion behind it. Papers of events organized by and promoted by Mo. Mailing, press release, newsletters, um, correspondence, and literature correspondence with associate organizations. And that gives an idea what Mo was relating, how, she, uh, how they related to other organizations, Catholics, evangelics, and so on. Now, this is my top five files. Um, the Letters of MPs is a must to read. Some of them are very plain and basic. I'm going to vote it in favor. I'm not going to vote it in favor. That's why. Um, but some of them are very saucy. <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, some of the MPs are still going on today. There are still MPs. And now I spot them on tellers like, ah, you said that when the, for the movement of the... In the at the time of the, the vote, they need to have the approval of the parliament. It's a good, it's a good file. Uh, the minutes of Central Council give a very good structure of what was going on uh, in the campaigning. The addresses of candidates to General Synod 1990, all of them, or most of them, addressed the point uh, what they, they thought about the movement of the, the ordination of women. Um, so the campaign knew that they need to get members of Synod that would vote in favor in order to gain the positive vote. So there was a huge, um, there is a lot of material uh, around this period, and that is why um, this, the uh, the addresses were so interesting because all the candidates knew that was going to be a point if they would be voted in or not. Um, the papers of campaign, very good as well because there's a lot of imagery on it, and the press releases because they give facts and, and figures. Um, thank you. Um, if you are interested in look at the material, it's available in the reading room, the LSC library reading room, the women's library reading room. The catalog is available online, so there is no images or things that haven't been digitized, but the catalog is online and you can find the women's library collections, LSC library as well. Um, if you want to see the material in the reading room, uh, please go online and in the web page called Access the Archives and Special Collections, because you need to, um, to book an appointment to see it. Um, and if you would like to talk to me, I'm actually officially on maternity leave. I came out today, um, but I'm not around much at the moment. I'm going to come back in October, but I have a, a colleague that may be of um, uh, help. Um, that's it, really. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Uh, I just want to make two points. Um, coming out of a social science background rather than a theological background, 
My colleagues here are theologians. They, they will deal more with the arguments. Um, I want to first just put the debate in a broader context. The debate happened because society changed. The church was reacting to secular change. The, the debate was not generated inside the church. Some, the society changed and something had to be done. And um, I expect many of you are familiar with Adam Gopnik, who's a very well-known broadcaster. Um, he does a point of view on Radio 4, amongst other things. And one thing I've learned from him is seeing this enormously long sequence of shifts to which institutions, including the churches, have to adjust. And it goes right back to, did we ever think, that, that's the key phrase, mm -hmm. did we ever think that left-handed people were sinister or gauche? And the vocabulary, of course, tells you everything. Did we ever think that slavery was admissible, that you could treat certain categories of human people in ways that you bought and sold them? Of course, we still do it. Did we ever think that you could discriminate on the grounds of color or ethnicity? Was that acceptable? It was for many generations. Did, you ever, ever, did we ever think that women were not capable of voting, never mind taking a profession or becoming a priest? Did we ever think that same-sex people were a category apart, a bit like handedness? Did we ever think that you shouldn't listen to a child, which is why we have the debate about child abuse now, the, the action of child abuse is not new. These are all historical cases. What we are doing now is listening to the child. That's new. And what I like to ask people on these occasions is, what next? What would be the next societal shift that demands a response on the part of churches and broader institutions you can tell me afterwards. I, I, I have a hunch. In fact, one of my colleagues here had a hunch too, but they were different, so we'll think about that. And so churches are obliged to come to terms with secular change, and some religious organizations can do this more easily than others. Broadly speaking, um, churches that, that have bottom-up decision-making find it easier because they can make the decision locally, um, independently. Uh, and this is why Protestant communities, unless they have a very, very strong biblical tradition which counteracts it, can usually make the decision more freely. Broadly speaking, religious organizations who call their professionals ministers were in a better position than religious organizations who call their professionals priests because the minister represents people and the priest <coughs> represents Christ, which means you're going in a different way with the argument. At the other extreme are the top-down hierarchical churches, um, the Orthodox churches, different communions of the Orthodox church, 
and the Catholic Church. And so far, they have not changed on this issue. Of course, there are members within it who feel strongly that something ought to shift, but so far, the institution has not changed. And when you get to this question of um, churches being exempt from secular legislation, I think that's a very interesting question, because personally, I would not like to live in a society where the state told the Catholic Church what to believe. I think societies have to make room for the seriously religious, and that's a tricky legal issue which perplexes people. But what about the Church of England, which is what this archive is about? But of course, it is both synodical, in other words, democratic, and episcopal. This is why it always has difficulty making decisions. Who makes the decision on behalf of the church? We're very unclear in the Church of England. Uh, And the third factor that makes it very complicated is that it is part of the Anglican Communion, um, which has, in theory at least, provincial autonomy. But on what? To what extent can any part of the Anglican Communion move in a different direction from um, the other parts? And as Francesca told us, um, this is exactly what happened with the ordination of women. Women were ordained outside England before they were inside. And, and a bit of the discussion at an early stage was what do we do with these people who are ordained and arrive in this country? Can they be a priest in the way that we understand it? And then, as well as this top-down and bottom-up, priests or ministers, um, you've got the, 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 the as were, evoking of tradition or scripture. You've got various sources of authority. And very strange bedfellows emerged in the debate as those with a strong view of scripture and a strong view of tradition who would normally be opposed to each other began to align against change or against something more liberal. Interestingly, um, I think this is very um, crucial in the debate, that the question of women becoming deacons happened before they became priests. It's a bit uh, difficult to explain the difference, but the most crucial difference is that, that, that a deacon cannot celebrate the Eucharist. But what it did do, what a deacon did do, they look to all intents and purposes like clergy women because they have, wear the collar. And what a lot of people um, began to um, experience was the ministry of a woman. And, and for the, as it, what I might call casually conservative, I don't like change sort of conservative, well, she's great. What's the problem? And I think this shifted a lot of, 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 of opinion amongst the sort of um, people who were just generally uneasy about change but didn't really have a theological reason to oppose this decision. Uh, and that made quite a difference. And, of course, the critical moment comes is when the middle ground shifts. That's always the critical moment sociologically, whether it is in terms of political power or religious change. And one of the, the, the most obvious changes in, that we've seen in the last decade is the change of attitude towards same-sex p- 
people, the middle ground has shifted definitively now. Interestingly, if you compare the two um, episodes, um, in the question of the ordination of women, the bishops were all in favour, uh, and the, the, the closest vote was in the House of Laity, two-thirds majority in each house voting separately. Why did we not do that at Brexit? That was a simple majority. Um, and you, you, you find that the, um, the middle ground um, has shifted, but the bishops in this case have not on same sex. Um, they were in favour of the ordination of women and the resistance was amongst the laity. On the recent issue, the current issue, it's very differently arranged. And so they're kind of similar, but they're all different. And, 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 but always in the Church of England, the question is who can make the decision on behalf of whom in a church which has multiple sources of authority and in which the question of the Anglican Communion is increasingly central because, of course, it is far, far bigger than the English church. The weight, the power of Anglicanism is in the global south. The numbers are in the global south. The money, sometimes the theological influence is in the north, but the numbers are in the south, and that's usually a conservative block of people. That's why it's so complicated. But I'm just going to finish um, with three quotes which come from the week after the debate. They were published in the tablet, and, and they're three different points of view, and I think they just capture very well the, the kind of feelings that were coming out of this debate and how people feel about an institutional shift. The first is interesting. Um, it comes from an individual, a woman, nurtured and nourished by the Catholic tradition. And she says, last Wednesday's vote then broke a vacuum and let in a gush of fresh air. One deacon in Dean's Yard said to me that she felt as though she could breathe again for the first time in years. The Church of England as an institution, with all the implications for our corporate life as a church, had said yes. The second is very different. The overwhelming sense of devastation has taken me by surprise. At a stroke, through the changing of minds by a group of laity counted on the fingers of one hand, the General Synod has destroyed the faith of the Church of England. Catholic faith and order has been sold for a quick fix of popularity, for a seven-hour wave of celebrity status in the national press, for a temporary appeasement of shrill feminism. I read that again and I thought, come on, get over it. And then I think that's exactly how I felt after the 23rd of June. I have to be honest. The third is a more pastoral or personal uh, response. It was, uh, it's a grandmother who had been into a London hospital that morning to visit her grandson, newly born. And she went to find the Church of England chaplain. And there was a note on his door saying, I'm with the Roman Catholic chaplain. In his office, we found two Catholics, 
one woman Methodist minister and one Anglican. They were together toasting the courage of the Synod. They shared their glasses with us and we prayed together for the Ministry of the Future to serve all the world's grandchildren. Very different reactions, but the point I want to make to you is how does an institution make a decision? It's not straightforward. Thank you. Hi. I'm Mandy Ford, and um, I'm not an academic, and I'm going to talk mainly from my lived experience, um, uh, and in particular from the lived experience of the Catholic wing of the Church of England. Um, I was ordained in 2000, so I'm second generation, as it were, of women ordained into the Church, and I was trained in what is generally thought of as an Anglo-Catholic training institution alongside men who did not believe that when I presided at the Eucharist, Jesus would turn up. And we lived with that difference and we continue to live with that difference. And that's the first thing that I want to talk about with regard to the outcome of uh, the movement for the ordination of women and the events that Grace has just described. Because we need to remember that at the point at which it became possible uh, for women to become priests, provision was also made for those men in the Church of England who could not accept that that was the right way forward for the Church of England. So in 1992, bishops were provided to give pastoral care and oversight to the men who could not accept the ordination of women. Uh, their formal name was Provincial Episcopal Visitors. They were widely known as Flying Bishops. And what that did was to create at one stroke two integrities within the Church of England. And one of the things that I think uh, we need to reflect on is the way in which the, uh, the Church of England has um, both accommodated uh, its differences and to what extent by accommodating its differences it has perpetuated injustice and those are big questions. But I want to say a little bit first of all about what I mean by the Catholic tradition. Uh, the Church of England is both Catholic and Reformed. Uh, it sees itself in continuity uh, with the Roman Church and uh, particularly in the 1830s and again in the 1870s, the Catholicity of the Church was uh, rediscovered and reinvigorated. And one of the key elements of that was an understanding that Anglican orders were in some way continuous from the apostolic succession uh, which characterised orders in the Church in Rome. And it's important to hold on to that as we come uh, forward to the present day. So those from the Catholic wing of the Church of England who in 1992 
felt uh, that women could not be ordained as priests were those who felt that the Church of England could not make a decision which separated it from that continuity with the Church in Rome. As an aside, I should point out that the Roman Catholic Church has never accepted either men or women in Anglican orders as being truly ordained, but that's another argument for another day. Um, the other thing that I think I want to, uh, to highlight, and it again picks up something that Grace said, is something about what the Catholic understanding of the sacraments, and in particular the role of the priest is, because that's very key to some of the problems and the kind of sociological outworkings of where we find ourselves today. So the majority of priests in the Catholic tradition in the Church of England would be celibate or at least single. They would have a sense that at standing at the altar they were standing in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, and would in some way see that um, as being uh, significant in anthropologically that the maleness of Christ was what was um, also inherent in the person standing uh, behind the altar. And some of the uh, more lurid and interesting, and I suspect uh, all there in the Mo archives, um, challenges to uh, women being ordained were the fear of priestesses and that sense in which there was a, um, a kind of a, a, a pa almost pagan understanding of what it would mean to have a woman standing behind the altar. So move forward to 2014 and Synod approved legislation to allow women to become bishops. And we've moved on from the, uh, from the archives that Fabiana has been working on. But uh, we're seeing some of the consequences of those events uh, coming out in a different way. Again, in order to achieve um, the mind of, uh, of the church, that was that women should become bishops, uh, there was a pastoral accommodation of those who could not accept women in Episcopal roles. The flying bishops went, and instead parishes were enabled to uh, petition for um, alternative Episcopal oversight um, from, from other bishops from both traditions and Sally may say something about what, that, uh, what the impact of that has been from the evangelical side. The particular difficulty uh, arose because um, as long as um, all men uh, were ordained by male bishops you could guarantee apostolic succession once you have women in the mix, you can no longer guarantee apostolic succession, and that uh, creates a, a challenge to those for whom uh, that's a significant understanding of what it means to be a priest. So how do we hold all of these things together, and what does it mean to say that as Anglicans we're all part of one church? when we can't recognize one another's priestly orders, when we 
can't recognise that the sacraments are valid when they are uh, being um, presided over by uh, somebody whose uh, priestly orders we don't accept. And it seems to me that what we've ended up with um, is um, a stretch of diversity within the Church of England um, that you might argue has become a kind of internal ecumenism and that certainly sometimes feels like the way that the language is heard. So we can all be very nice to each other, uh, but we are being nice to each other in the way uh, that we're nice to Baptists and Roman Catholics and the URC. But whether we really are one church is a very moot question. The other question, it seems to me, is a question about when theology becomes misogyny, and to what extent we have uh, a problem of uh, a theology of taint, which says that this is not simply about what I believe uh, about uh, what has happened to you ontologically um, at ordination or not, um, but whether I believe that if you are standing next to me at the altar... You're not just some random layperson standing there, but in some way your presence impacts on my efficacy. What that doesn't look like was my own experience of a wonderful missionary, a very elderly priest who was an associate in the parish where I was a curate. And as long as somebody was standing at the altar whose orders he recognised, even if I was presiding, he would accept communion. Now, that's, that's not theology of taint. That's a theology that says uh, as long as there is, there is uh, an, uh, an ordained person that you recognise um, participating in the liturgy, then, uh, then God will do what God has promised to do in that situation also seems to me that another thing that we might think about is the rather unhealthy separation that has arisen between role and function. So one of the ways in which we have manoeuvred our way through this process is to say, well, we can accept this person leading a parish and a leadership role and not see that in some way that's in related to their sacramental function. And that's being reversed in quite an interesting way um, around some of the dialogue around the appointment of Philip North as Bishop of Sheffield because he will talk about recognising uh, the women priests in his, in his potentially new diocese as leaders while he doesn't recognise them as priests. I suspect that if you reversed that and asked him to what extent he is a leader but not a priest or a bishop, you might be um, thinking about some rather, different, uh, some rather different issues there. How do those from an inclusive Catholic position see themselves in all of this? We have the same sacramental beliefs as our uh, traditional Catholic uh, brothers. We use the same arguments from tradition, but we believe that 
tradition evolves and that within the Anglican Church, both, both Reformed and Catholic, we have the right to reform ourselves within those complex structures which Grace has described. We tend to read scripture differently with a bigger emphasis on imagination, analogy and narrative. We may not accept what might be called a common sense reading. We're less interested in the pastoral letters and the household codes and more in solidarity and justice and we see uh, some of that being worked out but that leaves us with a problem of inclusivity because if you believe that we are one body as a church we have to work out what we do with those who wish to be part of the same body but who don't agree with us and I've spent um, the last three years of my life um, facilitating some of those shared conversations with folk with very, very different views, um, both of uh, human anthropology, what it means to be human, of human sexuality, and of gender. And it strikes me that what we are often uh, hearing is people's lived experience defining their theology and Catholic lived experience of priesthood has often been about celibacy or singleness lived out within sodalities, societies and communities and even now even among inclusive Catholics, it's not particularly family-friendly. We were chatting before we came down uh, us, uh, as, a, as a panel about the, the difficulties faced by uh, women from all traditions um, in the Anglican Church, and uh, I said that um, I'm um, somewhat excused from some of that uh, because I'm a gay-partnered woman, so I have a, a wife at home. <laughs> and that makes uh, some of the barriers to um, participation and to, for want of a better word, promotion in the Church of England less real for me than it would be if I had uh, spent uh, part of my ordained life um, child-rearing or uh, caring for uh, children at home. And I'm I'm mindful of that as being part of, our, um, part of our shared experience across the traditions uh, in terms of uh, women in ministries experience um, of the Church of England. There's an old joke that says, uh, what does it mean when an evangelical takes off her watch and puts it on a lectern? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, uh, my name is the Reverend Sally Hitchner. I am a card-carrying evangelical, although uh, some would argue I'm not a very good one because I'm a feminist and I also happen to believe in gay marriage. Uh, however, it's my family, and I don't know what your families are like, but my family... 
Uh, my family of birth is uh, complex, and sometimes I disagree with them, but I love them to bits, and if you say anything against them, I'll knock your block off. And I feel that's, that way uh, to a large extent about evangelicalism. Evangelicalism, for those of you who don't know, is uh, probably the other driving force against the ordination of women and women in leadership and women in positions of uh, power within the church uh, and sometimes even within society. Evangelicalism, the word, comes from the word evangels or the gospels and it's from a movement that started more or less with the Reformation uh, and was rebirthed again in the 20th century following the Second World War. Um, And it's about getting back to scripture, getting back to exactly what Jesus said and following almost the letter um, without the troublesome uh, difficulty of lots of theologians coming as intermediaries in there and telling you, explaining scripture away. It was uh, often seen as a, a rebellion against liberalism where they felt it got so intellectual and so high-browed, that they weren't really accessing the life of the Gospels and what Jesus had to say. And so there was this big movement to go exactly back to Scripture. So uh, even in the 70s and 80s, women started wearing hats because it says in the New Testament at one point that women should cover their heads when they're praying. Uh, I mean, there's lots of arguments for and against all these different things, but it it was a particularly strong movement to get back to basics. You might have heard uh, the phrase born-again evangelical, uh, particularly in relation to the American political right. Uh, But there's this idea of mission and the idea of conversion being vitally important within within evangelicalism and that you are going to hell unless you have converted to Christianity. And so there is this impetus, this passion and drive to try and uh, help the world to see things from their perspective. Um, And uh, there is this idea of holiness or set-apartness, um, and the idea that, that Christians are supposed to be distinct from the wider community and perhaps even distinct from liberals within the church who are possibly not doing it as well as they should do. So they, they, evangelicals often describe themselves, define themselves against another. So it, they are not liberals, they are not of this world, they're not too worldly, um, is a phrase that comes up often. And because of that, um, there is this idea that your private life is not really your private life. It, it, everything is important uh, when you're a priest. And so uh, who you're married to is important, how you raise your children is important, how well-behaved your children are is important, how well-behaved your wife is is important. Um, all these other things that people expect to know about your life that are not true in other aspects of the church. It also means that they were very late to cat- cotton on that they can make a difference through politics. There was this idea that you devoted yourself to the real work of the gospel, which was uh, to one-to-one helping, helping individuals to find uh, the true faith. Um, and so it, because of that, there was this uh, sort of inverse snobbery of where people would boast about how many bishops' posts they'd turned down um, and how, many, how they would never be, dream of being on General Synod or our governing council because that's taking them away from the proper work of being a good Christian. Um, and because of that they often ended up feeling that they were out of touch with what was going on in the legislative bodies of the Church of England. Uh, Evangelicalism is uh, not just based in the Church of England, but it's a cross-denominational movement that spans across Pentecostalism. Um, Even some aspects of the Catholic Church are more evangelical uh, than others. Um, But in particular in the Church of England, it's taken a particularly strong hold. 
Is this movement important? Well, it, it grew significantly in the 1980s with, when George Carey was the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was a distinct evangelical, and brought into place a lot of focus on mission, a lot of focus on evangelical values and wording. And then throughout the 90s, it grew enormously through the movement of conferences. So imagine sort of Glastonbury for Christians. Um, there was a lot of those sort of things that grew and grew and grew throughout the 1990s. And smaller churches would go to large conferences like Spring Harvest or New Wine um, and would feel a sense of numbers um, and a sense of being part of something bigger. And so would identify themselves with that particular conference and with the teaching that was said in those particular conferences from quite a small number of preachers, actually. And so there, the, the influence of those conferences made evangelicalism grow. And the, also the, the emergence of the Alpha Course, which is an evangelistic course that started in an evangelical church in London, I'm sure. I'm seeing a few nods around the room of people who've heard of Alpha. And so churches could run this franchise of an of evangelistic course and, have an, and so would buy into all, all the other values that Holy Trinity Brompton, the church that birthed Alpha, was uh, promoting. Africa is also a significant evangelical um, stronghold. The, the average Anglican in the world is evangelical and a young woman and uh, is uh, living in central and southern Africa. And, and the influence of American missionaries in particular at spreading, and British missionaries at spreading a particular version of Christianity with Victorian values and often um, Pentecostal, very emotional influences has spread throughout the African, uh, the subcontinent of Africa. So what do they believe about women? Well, uh, there is this idea of headship. So the idea of that the head which can mean the source or can mean the sort of literal head of uh, either a marriage or of a church has to be a man. And it comes from uh, five uh, verses or passages in the New Testament, two of them regarding churches where it says, I do not, where St. Paul says, I do not permit a, uh, a woman to be the head of a, a man that she must, must sit and learn in quietness and submission. Now, there's a whole load of discussion about what those verses mean, and I'm sure the entire panel have come to different conclusions than this one, but staunch evangelicals would believe that we should just read it as it is, so uh, that the Bible shouldn't need to be interpreted through theologians and social anthropologists telling you what it meant at the time. It, you should just read it as it is. And so they, they really believe that... The, 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 that women are supposed to be submissive to men in the, in the family so that they, the man says, no, I really think we should do this, that they have the authority of God behind them in saying that, whereas a woman, wouldn't, a wife, would not have that authority in disagreeing uh, with her husband or in the church, in fact. Now, there are millions and millions of exceptions to this. As you can imagine, this doesn't work in practice. Uh, the... Uh, women are what I've been, I've, I've been calling the priests of the gaps. So they are, they are filling the gaps that the men aren't covering. So this may be around age, so the huge, huge numbers of female youth workers, huge numbers of women who have been involved in children's work and involved in teaching uh, anyone under the age of 18, 18 basically. Uh, perhaps more controversially, they've, uh, they are seen to be, it's fine for women to be in positions of leadership and preaching and 
all sorts of things in, where there is a class dynamic going on. And so there have been really significant movements of women, um, even people like Hannah Moore in the Clapham sect who worked with William Wilberforce, who had a particular passion for the inner cities and was a very significant voice because she was upper class. Um, and there are even contemporary examples of very significant upper class women who are more influential than the average Anglican male priest in their day, even in the 1950s and 60s. Um, but also significant movements within the prison sector, uh, with particularly Alpha for Prisons, which was headed up by Emmy Wilson, an upper-class woman who did an, has done amazing work at encouraging prisoners to explore Christianity through the Alpha course. And nobody has questioned the fact that she's essentially a bishop of a large number of organizations doing her work. Um, or Jackie Pullinger, who is a famous uh, uh, woman who went out, she's relatively upper class, went out to uh, work in, in uh, Hong Kong with uh, people who are drug addicts and comes back and speaks regularly on why individuals and will preach in churches where they will not have another woman allowed to preach. Um, and, but she is allowed to preach um, because she is uh, working with a particular gap. Or Johnny Erickson Tada, who was famous in the 1980s and 70s and, and beyond because she was a paraplegic and so spoke about disability and worked with people who are disabled. So women can be in the gap. And then perhaps most darkly, women were, within evangelicalism, accepted as leaders when it was, where there was a racial difference. So it was fine for women spinster missionaries to go over and lead churches and plant churches and preach in other parts of the world but not in the UK. And I think there are huge problems with these exceptions, as I'm sure you can sense my discomfort when I'm talking about that. And then the other issue is marriages. No healthy marriage can work where you always believe that one person is always going to be speaking with the authority of God and the other person has to just follow it. And so I grew up in a very, very conservative evangelical setting. And even in the most conservative evangelical settings, some of my friends who were married would say, well, you know, I fully believe that my husband is the head of our household. And if it came to it, I would always do what he said we, we, should, we should do. But I would think it was a failure if ever he had to make a decision that I wasn't happy with. You can sense a sort of contradiction here, that people are sort of finding a pragmatic way around things. And because I think it, it really, actually, I don't think it's an ideological decision. I think there are definitely elements of ideology and possibly, um, well, probably, elements of misogyny in there as well. Um, but actually, I think it's a boundary marker. It's a definition to say we are different from them. They don't understand us. We are supposed to be different. We run our households differently. We run our churches differently. We are not supposed to be understandable. We are not supposed to be like you. And so they maintain this very strong boundary that says we are different. Now, what's changing? Well, the, the, influence, the biggest influence, I think, on evangelicalism in the last 100 years, and the thing that has made the majority of evangelicals in the UK now pro-women priests, pro-women preachers, um, and pro-women in all sorts of leadership roles, is Pentecostalism. Now, Pentecostalism uh, has emerged from the USA and has a huge impact on evangelicalism in the UK. And it has this basic idea of the priority for deciding what to do is what is blessed. So what is working, basically, in, non, in secular language. In a very, very pragmatic focus on what works and what doesn't work. And so if the Lord seems to be blessing a woman's ministry, i.e. if lots of people are coming to faith through it and if lots of people say that they found it helpful in developing their faith, 
then she clearly is appointed by God. And so in the States, there are very significant women leaders within Pentecostalism, uh, Catherine Coleman um, in the 1950s and 60s, and then Joyce Mayer, who you may have come across uh, now, who have a huge impact on huge numbers of men and women who listen to their teaching uh, through the media. They're very media savvy um, and usually communicating through television and radio. And their influence on the UK uh, evangelical scene has been enormous. And so people have been seeing women who they, they respect and seeing men who respect them and are slowly but surely allowing women to take the stages within the UK. And it started, uh, lots and lots of people were saying, well, maybe my wife could preach if I'm allowed to preach. Um, because this idea of the whole household should be swept up in this ministry. The evangelicalism have a, has a sort of a buy one, get one free idea that if you buy a vicar, you also get his wife. Um, and so uh, it's sort of swept up in that idea that women uh, could be anointed for priesthood sort of by osmosis, by being near and picking up the theology of their husbands. Um, and so now uh, people like the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is a card-carrying evangelical, um, and many, many evangelicals, I'd say maybe three-quarters of evangelicals in the country, and that's a conservative estimate, are inclusive of women preachers, at least in theory. In practice, there is a huge uh, amount to do and a long way to go, and there is a big difference. There's still a, a, a great disparity in terms of women who can be leaders of orga parachurch organizations and women who can be leaders of small churches and then women who are leaders of the larger churches, and there's still tiny, tiny numbers of women who lead churches more, of more than, say, 200. Um, there is still the lot that isn't changing, in particular in conservative evangelicalism, which is sort of a group within evangelicalism, which is even more conservative and even more rooted in this idea of difference. Uh, in the UK, uh, movements like Reform and in the USA, movements like the Southern Baptists have been pushing the, pushing the walls up higher and pushing down deeper into this sense of difference and the idea that they're not against the world. And the more feminism and the more the, the liberal side of the church push to try and force them to, to acknowledge the fact that women can preach and women should be equals within the church, the more that they entrench in this idea. And there's all sorts of reasons why that might be the case. It might be that they prefer a small pond where they can be big fish. It might be that they are scared of losing their identifying issues and that if they give way on one issue that then they will lose all of the things that are important will be left in the 1970s where, you know, terrible... Um, things were happening and, and academics were explaining away the basic truths of the gospel. Um, uh, and, but they have, they have changed their views significantly on so many things, for example on divorce. They have now moved to the stage where they can sort of acknowledge that it's okay for some people to get divorced. And even possibly in some churches they will have people where they more or less sanction remarriage of divorcees. And so they're moving on a number of things um, but not on this one issue. And the sexuality debate of uh, whether LGBT people are to be accepted within the church um, and gay marriage is okay is also something that's entrenching their differences. But it might also mean that they're taking their eyes off the ball. Um, when uh, people are so focused on uh, something else like the, the gay community, it suddenly means that they are letting women into positions of leadership uh, without thinking about it, perhaps. So now the, the head of reform, which is the main sort of uh, conservative organization arguing against gay marriage, is now a woman. 
admittedly, uh, she always, I've looked on her website and she, the first thing she says is what the name of her husband is. Um, but it's, it's still something that is a, a significant move and I don't think they've noticed what they've done there. So is there future hope? Well, there's three options for future hope. The first thing is that the, the mission of the church is becoming increasingly important and, vis- and visible. Um, I went to see Hig- Hidden Figures, uh, a film, anyone seen it? And one thing that really struck me about this, it's about a group of African-American women who worked for NASA and overcame so many hurdles and racial prejudice. And the reason why they overcame them was because NASA was scared of the Russians. Um, because there was a bigger goal, and these women were brilliant and were able to help them meet their bigger goal, and that meant that they got rid of segregated toilets, they got rid of all sorts of things because they had this bigger thing. And the way that the Archbishop of Canterbury is talking and the way that the church is heading, we are soon to be left with a situation where the church will not have the choice of being picky. My good friend is from the... uh, from uh, Macedonia, and he was talking about life under communism. And he said, there you don't distinguish between denominations or differences of opinion. You just find another Christian, you hug him, you say, my brother. And I think we may well be in this situation in the UK. Um, Hopefully not like it was under communism. But where Christianity does not have the the privilege of being able to be quite so picky in uh, which Christians we don't want to associate with. Secondary, secondarily, the, uh, because it, it might be a boundary marker rather than an ideological issue, there are lots and lots of women who are sort of slipping under the radar. We're still making the right noises, but essentially doing more and more and more and sort of gradually working their way through. It's a bit like Aesop's fable of the north wind and the sun, that, um, that actually by, by gradually increasing the amount that they're doing, even if they're not there in name, it will be a very small jump between them and overall church leadership or preaching in a church. Um, and finally, as you would hope, I would say, my final reason for future hope is God. And this idea that I think we, we need to expand our understanding. The way we're talking, it sounds like we've got a very tiny, mean version of God in our heads. Um, and actually what I think is there to be discovered is a very generous God where there is space for disagreement and the idea that God... Um, as I understand it, or as we understand it, could be big enough for somebody else's mistakes uh, and someone else's disagreements. Thank you. Um, My thanks to all the speakers. And there now is about a quarter now for um, everybody in the audience to put questions to our panel or to make comments on anything that you've heard this evening. Um, so I'd be very happy if you do, would do that. There are roving mics um, um, so that we can all hear each other. And so do please go ahead and put your questions. There's somebody just there, first of all. Thank you. Um, thanks to all the speakers for the interesting talks. It's really interesting to hear about this. I actually did my thesis on the movement for the ordination of women, and I've been through all of those archives and read those letters and minutes, so it's really nice to know that someone else has done the same thing um, and looked at those kind of trying to decipher Christian Howard's handwriting and read all of the stuff in them, so that's great. Um, And when I was, it's kind of been a couple of years since I've studied it. Um, I'm not in education anymore, so I'm trying to think back to it. But the thing that struck me the most when I studied it was how left out of history the movement for the ordination of women is, both in terms of kind of standard history, but also the feminist histories. Um, And when you look at it, 
it's people just kind of skate over it. They they refer to the movement for the ordination of women and women priests as part of a wider feminist movement. They say, oh, that just happened because of the wider changes in society and the changing attitudes to women. And they actually totally neglect the role of the women in Mo and that campaign that had to happen for the ordination to come about. And I think it it says a lot that the church was excluded from the 75 Discrimination Act and that shows that actually there did need to be a movement and there did need to be a campaign and there's a lot that we can learn as historians but also as feminists from how they did that campaign. Um, And my thesis was kind of a case study of looking at the tactics they used and the arguments they used and I remember getting kind of bogged down in all the arguments they were having among themselves about what tactics they should use and how radical they should be and there were some people who wanted to go off and kind of um, run services that were against the church's rules at the time to be radical and others um, that wanted to be more moderate. And the moderate wing did win the arguments. Mo was, was a fairly moderate movement. And when you look at the arguments they kind of advanced in the synod and, and more widely, they concede the differences between men and women. And they used that as a strength in their argument, which is quite interesting, I think. And they kind of argue that the reason women should be ordained is because women have qualities that men don't have in terms of being caring, being able to teach people. Um, and it's, it's interesting when you're looking at what, campaigns are successful and what aren't and what we can learn from that and I actually I take Mandy's point about the fact that the eventual act that was passed was so watered down and so so many kind of considerations for the people who didn't agree that actually maybe by advancing such a moderate argument and conceding to a lot of the opponents they ended up with a weaker thing in the end than they could have done Um, but I kind of just wondered what the panel thought about what we can learn from Mo from for future movements both in terms of kind of feminist causes and how we achieve feminist change but also um for the lgbt movement now within the church of england um and i think that that'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on and what we can learn from them okay thank you perhaps we could just um perhaps you'd just like to answer that in the order that you spoke so if we just start with fabiana do you want to say um well interesting you said because um my impression of reading a lot of uh, letters, some of the letters from the moderators and some of the arguments behind some decisions is that Mo didn't want to get involved with liberalism, feminism, and L- L- G- um, the, uh, any other movement. They wanted to get the vote in, and they felt the women uh, that was leading the campaign, they felt that if they got involved with other isms, they wouldn't be able to catch the attention of those that didn't want to go too far. Um, So bringing that back to today, to the discussion of how, you know, equalitarian movements and campaigns, I think a lot of uh, Mo got the vote in because they actually get got to the point of just getting the vote in, not perhaps not much discussion what what what's going to happen with women, and we we heard from from uh, Mo that you know the practicalities of having women in the church uh, uh, in the higher level, um, so. You know that's that's one point. Uh, 
getting back to just what they really wanted, not uh, the wider discussion of women in this in society. Uh, it's a very interesting question. Um, uh, the, the bit I'm going to pick on, because you've asked a lot of things, um, is, is this radical versus moderate? Because I think that is so applicable to so many things. Um, I mean, if you go to... I'll keep it in a, a church example, if you like, and, and think of the whole debate around faith in the city, which was pretty much coterminous with this. Um, I mean, that's 1985, and this is when the arguments were developing. Uh, and that completely shot through with, with um, a group of people who want to be moderate and ameliorative and make a difference and provide services and look after people who are in disadvantaged situations and, and those who want to, to nothing is, is, is good enough except structural reform of society and the overthrow of capitalism and you know, far more radical vision uh, and, and that is, is that kind of distinction you find in all sorts of things and I think that's also there in the LGTB debates which I think is interesting um, one of the things that I think is particularly resonant in, in, in that finally in the, the one that was going on now is um, the church is trying to face in more than one direction because it's trying to be pastorally generous um, but to hold the line in terms of Say, changing their view on marriage and again there's all sorts of different reasons why there's resistance do you see marriage as a sacrament or do you not and, and, and so there's all sorts of things but I, I'm very curious with the way that the, for the church civil marriage was a problem and then in the flick of an eyelid it was the solution <laughs> um, b because something more radical was being proposed and so I think you're, you're really um, I think you're really onto something in making that distinction, and that is applicable to all sorts of other reforming movements. And remember, though, that the Church of England is basically a very pragmatic institution. Uh, it's grown out of English pragmatism. It's a way of thinking that you edge forward, you find solutions, rather than you uh, appeal to a principle and everybody adheres to a universal principle. It, it's part of the way... British people think as opposed to French people uh, and you see it very strongly in, uh, in the theology of the Church of England or in more, even more in its ecclesiology is, is that you find a solution to the current problem rather than um, as it were stating a principle and applying it universally and that's why you get such very different situations on the ground now whether you think that's a good thing or a cop out um, <laughs> you, you know it varies hugely but there's a lot of people, and I personally I have quite a lot of sympathy with it, with don't let the best be the enemy of the good. Don't go for something so perfect that you're not going to get it. And I think that was the kind of argument that you, you're at least going forwards, even if you were not getting to the final goal in one step. So that's how I see it. Thank you. I was just laughing with Sally because I'd written at the end of my notes uh, the Church of England pragmatism or fudge. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, is sometimes what we're accused of is fudge rather than pragmatism. Yeah. Um, but I noticed even as you were speaking how 1992 feels like a really long time ago 
And if it feels like a long time ago to me, I suspect that you're rather younger than I am and it feels even like ancient history to you. I bet some people in the room weren't born in 1982. And such a lot has changed in those 30 years or so. So our whole... Uh, understanding of of gender and sexuality for example has changed radically and and you know that point that you were making about women in in mo making the argument that that women would bring different qualities to uh, to ministry feels quite kind of uncomfortable i think uh, to, to modern ears in many ways. And uh, it's also true and important to notice, I think, that in, as far as the LGBTI community is concerned in the Church of England, um, we're still suffering the repercussions of a motion that came to General Synod in 1986, which reaffirmed the uh, Church of England's understanding of marriage and sexual behaviour. And it was a... You know, it was... At the time, it was kind of accepted that that would, you know, that felt didn't feel as if that was going to have huge impacts, but in fact, it's had long, long-standing repercussions. And I think the other thing that that strikes me about the situation that we're in is just to think about how that pragmatism um, is working out in a world of tribes and networks and permissiveness in, in, the, in, the, in the most positive sense, um, but how we hold that together so it's not every single one of us sitting under our own fig tree happily believing our own stuff, but in some senses that we're also in dialogue with each other, and that's the real challenge from my perspective. Um. You asked, I think, about three different questions. So um, is there anything you particularly want to focus on that hasn't been said, or I'll, I'll just answer my own? Okay. Um, so uh, what can we learn for wider from this, um, more widely from this? Um, what the, so I, I lead, I think, the, lar- well, the largest support network for LGBT Christians in the UK, I think possibly even of any religious group who are LGBT. We're about 1,000 members at the moment. Um, And we've been quite involved in the discussions around Synod, partly because we take a very moderate approach. So we support LGBT Christians now currently of all ages. Um, We now have groups for lots of different ages. Um, But Uh, we started off just supporting 18 to 30-year-olds, and we had a very strong focus on them telling their stories. So, And I think this we created this this word called storyvism, this idea of activism through storytelling, and I think that's something that has been very has been quite resonant in the women bishops debate the idea of there's nothing faster than nothing changes your theology faster than meeting somebody um and being living next door to a woman priest who is just a good priest uh, changed people's ideas of what women priests are and you know to begin with that was the one exception and then you met some of their friends and and then you know you were staunchly in favor of women priests and i think the same is true with there's nothing that changes your views on gay marriage faster than having a gay child um, and I think enabling younger people in particular to cut through this idea that the LGBT community was a force to be reckoned with and something to be fought and bringing it back to the idea that they're, they're in your youth groups, they are children, they are in your space and in your churches already and are you going to carry on loving them or are you not? 
Um, and uh, they actually, General Synod invited four um, of our young people to share their stories in the last Synod and at the start of the, the end of their shared conversations. And you could sense that in the room that the atmosphere changed. Even some of the most conservative voices were hearing for the first time possibly real individuals who they didn't see as a threat. But they, this was, you know, 18, 19-year-olds. We deliberately picked younger people to do this. Um, and their eyes were welling up and you could sense that it stopped being a paper problem and started being a person in front of them. And, and I think this idea of storyvism, and, and, and you look at the way that Ireland has moved towards gay marriage, and if you look at the adverts that they've used over there, it, they are so focused on loving your family, this idea that you know, the Irish community is very built around family. And so they really use that idea of stand up for your family as in their campaign. And it was immensely successful in a very religious culture. And I really think, I mean, history remembers the suffragettes, and I think there's a space for radicalism um, and a space for fighting against another's will to make your voice heard. And I do think now we're at the stage for the suffragists, those people who can negotiate and be able to win people over through arguments. I, I, think, I do think you... I'm torn with your example of where they would argue for complementarianism and argue that we need a sort of motherly touch to priesthood. Um, and I, I struggle with that because... I mean, one of the issues that we found with the women bishops debate was that initially we were offered a sort of technical women bishops, but not really equal um, in that phase. And, and I think people misunderstand us when, and they think that what we want is a particular thing, whereas actually what we want is equality. Um, and I think we get there by misarguing and arguing based on the wrong things. Um, and so, but I have to say that the last General Synod discussions that ended last week, was yeah. it? My brain is a bit fuzzy. Um, it's universally understood that that was a game-changing conversation, that, that, that there was a huge amount of, would you say it's universally understood as well? I mean, mm -hmm. that that was a big shift at least. And so I do think there's a huge amount of hope. Can I just, just, just one, uh, absolutely, I think the, the interesting shift was a shift into recognising the scope of the difference. And once you've got to that, mm -hmm. then you can have the dialogue. While you're busy trying to pretend that you can smooth it all over, then you can't get there. And, and that's something about the, the changing understanding of, of authority, which, which is certainly at work in the dynamic, I think. And also, sorry, just to add that there's a huge need for secular feminists to understand that religious people can be on their side. I've, I've personally experienced a huge amount of animosity, and there are a number of feminists who are religious who are trying to overcome that. And I think actually the way through that will be through Muslim women, who people are so amazed that there's a woman who's Muslim who is counting herself as a feminist, that they're getting platforms, and because of that, Christian women are also getting platforms alongside them. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to be, to be very, very quick. Perhaps you could just make a comment, because I don't think we're going to have time to ask everybody on the panel to reply. So could I ask you to do that, please? Just the person there and then the person there. Could you take the need mics? 
Okay, I'll uh, try to be uh, very brief. Um, so my interest is around the interfaith uh, element and particularly the engagement with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, my background is with the New Zealand Foreign Service and I've spent the last four years in Rome where I dealt with both the, uh, the Vatican and with the uh, Anglican Centre in Rome because at that time the head of the Anglican Centre was a New Zealander. Um, and uh, one of the things that I found myself wondering was whether there would eventually be a situation where the Anglican Church might quite come to send a woman priest as a representative to the Vatican. We may be a long way away from that now, but I just wondered, I'd be interested in your comments on what that might look like and what changes that might potentially bring about for both sides. Thank you. Could perhaps you just reply very briefly? Yes, I, I think we're much too polite to do that, is probably the answer. But it's also interesting how um, we, for example, from, from the cathedral in Southwark, we probably have better relationships with our Roman Catholic neighbouring cathedral than we do with the traditional Anglo-Catholics in our neighbouring uh, parish which is part of the ordinariat. So, you know, we work ecumenically across all these things all the time, I think. I, I, I also think that the, the predilection of the current Pope... I, don't, I mean, Pope Francis has made a difference. To be quite honest, he's not made a difference in terms of gender so much as in other areas. But you can imagine, should there be a Pope who has... Uh, is, well disposed towards women or sees the need for change, it could happen very quickly. I mean, it won't mess about like the Anglicans did. It will be a different process of change. Uh, I just have a question uh, maybe for Sally and Mandy. Um, putting aside legislation and the fudges of the five principles and things like that, um, what do you think are the greatest cultural obstacles for women in leadership in the church in your experience? Um, okay. um, I think one of them at least is um, the idea of um, temptation and that women can be a source of temptation that's definitely something younger women are facing and having to overcome there is a huge obstacle when one of the most strongest arguments against women's ordination was that women might wear dangly earrings at presiding at the altar and that that might be a great distraction. Um, and I've, even within my time, I've had numerous people tell me that they don't have women on their senior le leadership team because of the risk of adultery. Uh, you want to sort of turn around to them and say, well, they're not that good looking. <laughs> but their wife, however. <laughs> um, but, and I, I think that's one, one thing I would add. And I think the other is the, is the culture that affects women uh, in all aspects of the, of the professions and vocations, which is that, that the working patterns uh, were designed for, uh, for single men or men who had uh, support at home. And um, uh, uh, right across the church, you know, the, the average clergy person works a 50-hour week the average clergy person in senior leadership works a 70-hour week. Uh, it's pretty difficult to do that and do your ironing if you do it yourself. Or take maternity leave. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
Thank you all very much for coming. Um, the papers that we've been talking about this evening and around which this uh, discussion has been organised are one of the treasures of the Women's Library, which, as some of you will know, is now at the LSE. Um, and so it's been a real pleasure to hear an archive discussed mm -hmm. and to make an archive and to make an archive live so vividly, as has been the case this evening. And for that, I really do want to thank most sincerely everybody who's come to speak, and also to communicate my sense that this discussion, despite the um, limited numbers of people here, is a discussion that really could continue, has an enormous depth and range to it. Thank you very much for coming and being an audience, and thank you too to the panel. Thank you. Thank you.